Well, I know it was uh, it was Bill Cosby in the Bill Cosby himself special that did the she's just an old woman trying to get into heaven when talking about his parents and why they're so good to his kids. So, mm. and now he's just an old. Never mind. I, I just won't go there. <laughs> Oh man, so many jokes to to tell with that that are inappropriate and not good for this for for the current juncture. So, <laughs> back to the bin. I've got the, uh, my wife just started the Chinese laundry behind me. I'm sure you'll hear that during the show. Ancient Chinese secret, eh? Secret, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's good oh, I thought about you today, Mike, because um, me and Ben were driving down to um, the auto show. No, you had nothing to do with the auto show. But he's gotten, he has quite the love of 80s songs and okay. such. And he was trying to stump me on, 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 songs and things and he puts on the theme to the greatest american hero and i just started going on i'm like yeah he because uh, he doesn't know that it was a tv show oh, okay and i was like oh we're gonna have to find that's another thing we're gonna have to find on netflix or somewhere for you to watch i'm like that was a great show i love that as a kid and this and that but i think i told paul about this the other day with um the reference to superman and <laughs> and what my son said yeah and yeah. uh oh, we were watching an episode of frazier and at the end, it said guest caller was Christopher Reeve. And I'm like, oh, hey, rewind that back. And I listened to it without, you know, without watching the show. I just listened. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's his voice. And my son goes, who's Christopher Reeve? And my wife and I both smacked our foreheads. And and she looked at me. And it, and it was almost like she turned into Stephen Amell from Arrow. You failed this child. <laughs> So I was, I was like, give me that remote. And I snatched it out, and I went to Hulu, and I found Superman the movie. I'm like, we're watching this right now. But I'm like, but nothing. You're going to sit here, and you're going to watch Superman the movie, and you're going to like it. I um, I think it's on Hulu right yeah, now. Yeah, it was. Right we sat right and watched now. the whole thing, and then we started to watch Superman 2 after that. And he was a little bored in the first half hour, you know, with the planet Krypton. But um, once we got off of there, things started to pick up. He, he was a little perspective changes because... Now, for me, the first hour almost feels like a perfect movie to me. Oh, yeah, and yeah. After the first hour, when they start adding a little of the Otis comic relief, it's yeah. when, I, when I don't really care for it quite as much. He says that that's Chris Tyler's and I's theme song. Yeah, that one. I was like, thanks, man. I am very uh, outside of my people when it comes to that film because I, I, glory, I will talk about it in glowing terms and until i go and then there's that effing poem in the middle that brings the film to a screeching halt and it doesn't it it almost doesn't recover which poem the um the can you read my mind oh that oh yeah yeah yeah, that was kind of as recited by margot kidder but it's just oh god is and and you you say that to some superman fans and the shock and horror that you are are pelted with 
it, it's why I don't hang around with my people too often. <laughs> well, like the when when you listen to the score, and in the overture portion of it, when it cuts to that portion of it where where it's you know just orchestrated but no singing mm-hmm. or speaking, yeah. it's it's a it's really a very pretty melody, mm-hmm. but it's just that that speaking over the music that just takes me mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah, the people that put together the DVD for my wife and I's wedding did a montage video with the love theme from Superman playing in the background. So there's a nice little bit of that at the end of the the whole ceremony thing, uh, which uh, which was kind of funny because the music that we exited on was the music that Jack Skellington comes back to Christmas Town uh, with at the end of Nightmare Before Christmas. I know this shocks you guys. Uh, given who my wife is, but still. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard that, that she uh, that she like, likes those films. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a she, she's a fan. You know, she likes Tim Burton. Uh, has never seen the Planet of the Apes film, and I'm kind of trying to keep it that way. Yeah, well, if she wants to keep liking him, it probably is best <laughs> that she doesn't. I don't know, though. I didn't have a. A big, big problem, oh, other wait, than the no. ending made no sense. But, I'm completely know. wrong. We saw that in the theater, and she just refuses to acknowledge that. That's right. That's like me with the uh, when they tell me that they made a part three to The Godfather. <laughs> Isn't that only because Coppola needed money? Oh, I'm sure. Or I'm sure something that was like definitely that. one for the money. Uh, <sighs> that's when they were trying to make Andy, Gar- still trying to make Andy Garcia a thing. Yes. Uh, which is and too they bad. Tried, they actually tried to make Sofia Coppola a thing. <laughs> and it turns out for an actress, she makes a really good director. So, and again, I've, I heard, I've heard her directing efforts are not bad at all, but I haven't actually seen any of them. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Lost in Translation either, uh, though I want to because I like Bill Murray. But no, I liked Andy Garcia. He was really good in The Untouchables. Yes. And in Dead Again. Didn't see it. Uh, it's a highly underrated film. Oh, Dead Again. That's with. Emma, uh, Emma Thompson uh, and Kenneth Branagh. It's uh yeah, that's that's a really weird film. It's a it's a murder mystery that involves reincarnation. Reincarnation and and a murder taking place again by the same murderer. What like 30, 40 years yeah. later? But yeah. you don't know who the murderer is until the very end, and then you're like, what, what, what? Because you think of the whole thing, it's one person, but it's not. I just always assume it's Tony Perkins and that he's in a dress. <laughs> No, yeah, Kenneth Branagh is excellent as the private eye in it, and uh, Emma Thompson is incapable of being bad in anything. That well, that's when they were still married, too, wasn't it? Yeah, before he cheated on her with, uh, what's her name, uh, Helena Bonham Carter. So, mm-hmm. which a friend of mine says, if you're going to cheat on Emma Thompson, it can only be with Helena Bonham Carter. So, but uh, no, was, and Robin Williams has this really small part where he's this he's this guy working at a grocery store, but the only reason he's working there is that he was a psychiatrist that got booted out of the profession for sleeping with a patient. Uh, and he's just it's just one of his better dramatic performances. Oh, I uh, thought he was saving his pennies for Sunday. Oh, <laughs> for Sunday. Oh, never mind. When he's 64. <laughs> No, I'd, I'd track it down, Paul. I think you'd like it. Uh, if you if you like murder mysteries uh, and kind of noir settings, and, and all the flashbacks take place, uh, they're all in black and white. Uh, so it's, uh, it's it's an interesting acting exercise on everybody's part. So, Yeah, that came out in the 90s, I think. 
Like 1990, I think, because I remember watching it on HBO a thousand times. Yeah, that was when I was in in the service, and I could go. I went to movies all the time, and I remember seeing that in the theater. And I had money. <laughs> well, there wasn't really much else to do when you were not on no, leave. No, I well, just I would get off. You know, no overhead, no health insurance, didn't have to buy food if I didn't want to. Just you know, had a car that was paid for, so it was uh, video cassettes, CDs, movies, comic books. Oh, I love the life. Then, like, two years before I got out, I was like, I got to save some damn money. <laughs> got to go back in the real world. Oh, no. So you stopped going to the film movies or stopped buying comic books? Well, let's not get crazy. I stopped going to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a real life with Dr. Bill? Yeah, maybe it was. <laughs> well, I, I, I had the wife that I was buying stuff. Well, the future wife that I was buying stuff for, so... Notice I didn't say future ex-wife. Oh, that's because she was walking by. I was about to say. <laughs> it's the old, uh, what? what's his name, Jeff Goldblum. I'm always on the lookout for the next ex-Mrs. Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys watched that documentary by Shatner on the first seasons of uh, Next Gen yet? Mm-mm. It's It was on Netflix when I saw it, but he basically interviewed everybody responsible for the first like two seasons of next gen and what a complete clusterfuck it was. <laughs> uh, so it's, it, it, as a friend of mine said, it was great because it's an area of Trek that Shatner isn't like personally invested in. Like, you know, it's not something he appeared on. Right. So it, it actually came off as kind of an outsider's view though, to somebody that knows all the players so uh, I, Rachel really enjoyed it, actually, which is uh, kind of interesting because sometimes we watch documentaries and she's not as plugged in uh, as I am, but she really liked it. Uh, so and Patrick Stewart. Uh, let me look that up for you, and I can uh, I can get that for uh, my phone's in the well, other room. First question is, do you know what it's called? And secondly, second question is, is it still available on Netflix? Uh, that's that's two questions. I can because... Oof. Sorry, those garlic shell noodles came back up. Damn. Mm. Yeah, I made spaghetti tonight. Luke Cage. Hey, Luke Cage renewed for a second season in Netflix. Mm. Woohoo! Hey, did you guys watch the... Spa, because that, that, I'm hearing excellent things about that. The uh, uh, Iron Fist trailer hit today. A new one? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, put, oh, I put a link I didn't see to that. on... Uh... I, I just on Facebook. I don't think I did it on any page. Oh, I'm kind of. I've been. I guess I, I can reconnect myself to a lot of the pages. I re, I disconnected myself from a lot of things. I've been just inundated with cat videos. Well, I could understand just, why you'd do that. Ease my mind. Oh God, I gotta look at this. The 15 hottest Katy Perry photos I've ever seen. Hmm. No, no, no. Gotta be strong. Just clickbait. Don't do it, Bill. Hate that clickbait. I'm, I'm looking on it Netflix. Is called... I, don't, I don't see it under documentaries, which is where I think it would be. Oh man, look at all these cool... Chaos on the Bridge. Chaos on the Bridge. Chaos. Let me see if I do a search for that. Dario's got all these and cool it's... ornaments. Chaos on the Bridge. It is available on Netflix. Ah. Yeah. So they have, they have uh, it's, new... it's about an hour long. Yeah, 59 minutes. They have this new feature on Netflix where you can actually, like, you know, I have Netflix on my phone, 
and you can actually download onto your phone onto your phone or whatever device you're watching on so that you don't have, oh, to have any type of internet connection when you're watching it hmm That's yeah neat. i heard something about that i didn't know if it was real so i just i just <laughs> i'm in the process of downloading for the love of spock and chaos on the bridge as we speak <laughs> oh so i, I could download I, it to my ipod my my ipad and visit it yeah. uh, visit it and uh, watch it at work <laughs> oh sorry i'll yeah. edit that out for you <laughs> thanks <laughs> with on your, my with lunch your new break. job and all yeah who is killing a cat oh that's uh chewbacca, chewbacca. and if anybody oh, calls okay. my phone it'll be making a duck sound <laughs> scared the hell out of me ben got a big laugh out of it because it went off in my back pocket while we were stuck in traffic and i haven't got used to the new ringer and i was like well, i was like jumped like there was a duck was flying in the car he just giggled and giggled. Oh. What are you, throttle Chewbacca? Oh. Is that what you're calling it now? <laughs> it's a euphemism. <laughs> Choking Chewbacca. Oh. <laughs> Some kind of weird sex game going on at Bill's house. I don't know. <laughs> Flogging the Sarlacc. Choking Chewbacca. Like if it's got teeth, you don't need to be messing with Ooh. it. Ooh. Yeah. I'm just saying. Do not enter. <laughs> so we should we should actually talk some invasion because it's already quarter to ten and we haven't even invasion. opened the episode. Invasion. Oh, sorry, I was doing the guy from episode one. Invasion. Almost sounds like he's doing radiation. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined by Dr. Bill Robinson. <laughs> I'm Dr. Dominator. <laughs> and we are joined, as always, well, no, not really as always, huh? But we are joined by Michael Bailey returning to Back to the Bins from whence he came. <laughs> it just feels like I'm always here, because I just keep leaving my crap behind. Feels and I don't like the it first up. time. Feels like, feels like the very first time. All right, and so that was our show, he's... everybody. <laughs> so we, we're, we are scoring, and we are doing a score episode that's a little different from our usual, because we are, as we are recording, we have just completed this week the four-part uh, CW crossover on Supergirl, Flash, Green Arrow, and Legends of Tomorrow, or just Arrow, excuse me, I said Green Arrow, um, which effectively adapted the storyline Invasion, which is a 1988 miniseries. Mm-hmm. I believe 88. Three-issue mm. three, three issue miniseries, and boy, each book was long. <laughs> well, they were all 80-page giants, so... Yeah. Mm. You, don't, you don't see too many miniseries put out in that type of format, though. Normally, you, I think you'd see this put out in, you know, maybe a 12-issue regular-sized miniseries. Yeah, I'm not yeah there's sure a lot why. packed in there. Uh, they did that because usually, you know, like you said, it's at least six issues, uh, sometimes four, sometimes five. But it felt like this was a six issue series crammed into a three issue series bag. And it was. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's a good description of it, to be fair. Uh, but now 
you know, in order to do this, because I had never read this before, and we're doing this at Mike's suggestion, or, or this was one of several things Mike suggested. I, I don't want to make it sound like you've really pushed this one on us. Uh, <laughs> you suggested a couple of things, and we all locked in on this one, and I had never read it before. I, had you ever read it, Bill? No, no, but uh, I thought this would have been good, too, with the recent crossover on TV to, well, to the, tie the it TV all together. Well, the crossover effectively adapted this story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I think that that makes it even more effective. You know, and again, this is a little bit of a strange score episode for us. But there was also score! a tremendous number of uh, you know other issues that crossed over into it that aren't part of the miniseries. And I think there's a list of it on Wikipedia. Yeah, tie-in issues. There is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen that just cross over into Invasion Number One. Yes, those were the mm. first strike crossovers. And then there's another 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 that cross over into issue 2. And one, two, mm-hmm. three, just, just 4 that cross over into issue 3. But overall, I mean, if we tried to read all of that for this show, it would show, <laughs> it would show dedication to our craft and, and a, uh, just a love of podcasting that, that we can't match. I was going to say insanity we have not reached before. I would now I would if you have the time to sit down and do it, but you know. Yeah, I was about to say if you do want to hear a show covering each episode, each issue, an episode at the time, head on over to the Fire and Water Network and listen to Siskoid and Bass talk about it on the First Strike Invasion episode uh, uh, podcast. And I'm, where I'm there... all for recommending that as long as they continue to get our show. <laughs> do not do not make their show your priority over us. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. No. Oh, they're they're doing what I call the Lord's work because this there is a difference between something being the best and being your favorite. Oh, and with that in mind, this is my favorite crossover DC ever did uh, because it was the first crossover that I was ever really there for. Uh, I remember picking up issues two and three off the off the stands with my Superman books, and I picked up a couple of the crossovers that I could find on the newsstand as well. So uh, I, I read this pretty much as it was coming out and just loved it then. And I, I'm rereading it now. I just I still have that that love and affection for the series because there is nothing cooler than an alien invasion stories where the superheroes are fighting off the aliens. That's just uh, that, that that's that's kind of a no brainer, really, as far as high concept for a series. And, and I, I do have to kind of go with the thought process that you always you know, a certain element of nostalgia always makes you love the first time you do something. Mm-hmm. You're first exposed to something, and if it's something you enjoy, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we people don't love the first time they were exposed to Root Canal, but, mm. you know, <laughs> but, but if it's something you enjoy and it's the first time you did it, usually that's your fondest memory, and you're never going to top that. So I, I can definitely understand your, uh, your, your affection for the series. And, you know, you're going to give the synopsis in a couple of minutes, but this... Again, this was a very meaty read. Three issues that could have been spread out over many, many more. I mean, what's what's the average comic now? About 20 pages? Mm-hmm. So that would put each of these issues at about four comics worth of material, mm-hmm. which effectively makes this three issues. It's a 12-issue miniseries contained in three issues. Yep, and it's, uh, it's, it's a very meaty trade paperback as well. They finally released that. <laughs> okay, so this is DC having a little fun with, at Marvel's expense. They released the Invasion po- po- uh, trade paperback when Secret Invasion was going on. 
And on the cover of the of the invasion trade paperback, it says "Invasion Secret No More." <laughs> and I can only assume this is them getting back at Marvel for when DC released Identity Crisis, and Marvel rushed in to production a limited series called Identity Disc. Yeah, uh, which wasn't a bad limited series but it was just so obviously named that so it would be on the shelf next to an identity crisis so uh i just assumed that was just dc getting back at them for that i can't blame them on that one i bought identity disc i i have it Mm. i don't think i ever sat down and read it but i do own it don't bother Yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's not a. What they say the plot is isn't what the plot is. Uh, what they sold the series on never happens. Uh, it, it, that's my memory of it. Being just kind of disappointed in the writing and the art. And yeah, I don't want to go too far afield with that because that's not what we're talking about today. But if I'm if my memory is correct, they sold it as being kind of like the shield files on everybody mm-hmm. getting out into the you know the supervillain world. And and that's that's what I remember it being. And again, I never actually read it, so <laughs> they had the knock list basically from the first Mission Impossible film. Mm-hmm. Or I'm picturing uh, what what was the character in Justice League that got Batman's files? Was that Prometheus? Rachel Ghoul. Yeah, Rachel Ghoul with with the Rachel battle storyline. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what I'm you know that's what that makes me think of. And I think I'm trying to remember if that Justice League story predated the. Uh... It wasn't even that good. I don't. It, I mean, the I, I I can't even remember the exact end, but I know it wasn't what it was originally. What you thought it was going to be. It's disappointing. I think this word you keep using. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Inconceivable. All right. So, uh, invasion, Mike. You have a synopsis for us. Okay, do we want to do all three at once, or do we want to do them one at a time? It's a uh, dealer's choice on this one. I'm going to follow your to... lead on that. Whatever you like is fine with me. Because... Do we want to compare the TV stuff after we go over the comic? Yeah, I think that's a good way to do it. Okay, okay. Well, because synopsis-wise, this this is a pretty easy thing to break down over the three parts. In the first issue, we are introduced to the Dominators, who... Most of the alien races that we see in this series either first appeared in the Legion of Superheroes or in the New Teen Titans. So you have the Dominators, who are these yellow-skinned creatures with sharp teeth and red dots on their heads. And we open on them testing a bunch of humans that they've kidnapped. They're from India? (laughs) Oh, sorry. Sorry. Never mind. All hate mail will be directed to Dr. Bill. (laughs) But basically, the Dominators have... Uh, are a bit concerned about the fact that humanity, uh, unlike a lot of other alien races that are all the same, have a tendency to develop superpowers. And this could be a destabilizing force in the universe. Even though they don't have really the technology to get off their planet now, what happens when they can get that? So basically they're trying to test to figure out what makes humans have superpowers in the first place. And their first batch of test subjects actually yields more survivors out of the 50 people that they captured, seven survive, and they were only expecting two or three. So they basically get together with an alien race known as the Kuns, because I really don't want to pronounce that uh, race too much because it could go ugly really fast. And they propose an the Kuns and the Dominators propose an alien alliance, which eventually is composed of the Citadel, the Thanagarians, the Gildishpan, the Scions, Daxim, 
the Kuns, the Durlins, and the Okarins, and they all get together to basically open up a giant can of whoop-ass on the Earth. Through the course of the first issue, we see Adam Strange, who is the hero of Ron, but is also a human, give himself up because he doesn't want to destabilize the relationship of Ron and Thanagar. Uh, but he thinks it's okay because he's going to end up on Earth anyways. We see the uh, superhero group, the Omega Men, uh, get captured by the Alliance and uh, jailed on Stellar Trump. Starlag. Starlag, that's right. Yeah, Starlag, like a play off of Stalag. Like yeah, Stalag 13. That, that's where I, that's where I got confused with. And basically, they all converge on the Earth and say, give us your superheroes or we're going to destroy you. Uh, their opening salvo is actually to take over the entire continent and country of Australia. And the United Nations gets together, and on the very last page, we see their answer, uh, the first issue, we see their answer, which is, Earth 2 Invaders drop dead. <laughs> That's a takeoff, you know, on, uh, on, on, I think it was the Daily News had that as a headline. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember if it was Gerald Ford or Jimmy Carter. I think it was Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford to New York drop dead, because mm -hmm. he had yeah. rejected a plan to provide money for something that they wanted money for. But, uh, but that's the end of the first issue, which really contains no real recognizable superheroes and only a few characters that, if you're a casual comic book reader, that you're going to recognize. And yet, I was pretty much uh, engrossed in it the entire time. Like, the way they wrote these characters, the dialogue's kind of snappy and funny. And, you, you know, they do kind of catch you up along the way. But I could see, Paul, if you really weren't familiar with DC, how this would be kind of a holy crap type of uh, reading experience in terms of not really understanding who all the players were. Yeah, that, I mean, that was one of the problems for me was... And I, I, I had read Omega Man, Omega Men, excuse me, back in the day, and I recognized the look of some of the characters, but I had no memory of the actual backgrounds, powers, and backstories. Yeah. yeah I, I, and that was a big part of it for me. Well, I remember some of them because I used to read the Omega Men and the Teen Titans at about the same time. I mean, that's like really the only DC I ever read, The occasionally some Superman and Batman and the Outsiders. But So I recognize them probably a little bit more than you did, but still, it's really it's been a long time since I've probably a good 30 years since I've read a lot of Omega Men. I've been trying to go back and pick them up one by one, but I haven't read them um, either so it was it was i mean i recognized it uh, i recognized um uh what is it oh what's the cat guy tigor uh, tigor oh, oh i couldn't remember that name um and i remember that's where lobo was introduced was in any omega man but not the lobo um that he became so yes he was originally created as a satire on wolverine uh, and then that just kind of took on a life of its own, and he became one of the hot characters of the 90s, mostly due to the Lobo paramilitary Christmas special, uh, which was a, uh interesting thing where he takes on Santa Claus. That was the fan film, with the, right? With the guy from... Uh, yeah. Who's no longer with us, I think. I think he passed away, didn't he? Andrew Bierski died? I loved him. He was in the, Hudson Hawk and... Yeah, I thought he uh, did. Uh, Hudson Hawk in the program, and he was Max Shrek's son in Batman Returns. He was in um, uh, the Michael Bay movie. Uh, he was in Pearl Harbor too. He was one of the guys on the Arizona. 
Oh, that's right. He was the one that was constantly giving Cuba Gooding Jr. shit, uh, which I think is also like most of the film going community. So I I just felt he was kind of a stand in for that. But no, it's kind of funny. What was his name again? I was going to look him up real quick. Andrew Benarski. He's got kind of a uh, or Benarski or something like that, but it's spelled like most Polish names, whereas most, when you look at it, you're like, wow, that has meant way too many consonants together, and I don't quite understand what's going on. But when you grow up in Pennsylvania Dutch country, which has a lot of uh, uh, Polish settlers as well, you kind of get used to it. So I, um, so did you have any specific questions, Paul, or did you just want kind of like an overview of who these people were? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say more or less, I when I read it through, I thought the motivation of... The, you know, the uh, aliens was kind of cool. The the whole thought that, you know, eventually Earth was the only planet that paid a, that posed a threat to them. And they were trying to isolate what it is that gave the superheroes their superpowers. And, and I also liked, like you said, that they had that group of people and that seven of them survived. And that that was like inconceivable compared to the pre-testing that they had done. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I liked the whole concept. And that's... How Unless convenient one of them something. was Snapper Car. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, but that was, that was the whole, like, to me, that was my whole take from the first issue was that was the setup to the story. And, you know, that that's 80 pages of setup, which is quite a bit. Unless, you know, a lot of the more subtle things were probably lost on me because I didn't have the familiarity with these other characters when they went to them. Well, I, I think I don't think there's really anything to be lost from not knowing who they are because... Uh, I mean, if, if you if you read the New Teen Titans, you'll know who the Okarans and the Citadel are because they were enemies to uh, Starfire's planet, uh, Tamaran. So you kind of know that. And the Daxamites, the uh, the Scions, the Durlins, uh, and the Cahuns were big uh, antagonists in the Legion of Superheroes. The and, Durlins, you know, they weren't named after John Ratzenberger, were they? Probably not. From Major Durlin in um, The Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> Sorry. No, I think they predate that, because Chameleon Boy's been around for years. Ah. Uh, and, you know, if you know who Hawkman is, you know who what Thanagar is. So Yeah, that, it's one, just like... that one I know. <laughs> uh, he but... is still alive. Sorry, I was wrong. Andrew Bernarski, not Hawkman. This just in, Andrew Bernarski is not dead. Wait till so... tomorrow. It'll be all over the internet. <laughs> But what I liked about the first issue was all of the kind of political scheming of setting up this alliance and seeing how their one, the one force that they really needed to deal with within their own like backyard, essentially, was the fact that these X Green Lanterns might pose a problem. So we see a couple pages of like one of them is giving a speech and he's assassinated. Uh, in the middle of uh, in, in the middle of it, and then another is chased through the sewers and killed by the Cahoons, and another is you know chased down in space. So you know between that and seeing all of these planets like giving over their political dissidents uh, that are against the invasion, and, and, and they're all being imprisoned. I mean, all that's just like wow, this is this is kind of going deep for this, you know? <laughs> like, like normally if you just like, there's just a bunch of villain aliens and they're all banding together to destroy the earth. It's kind of interesting to watch Keith Giffen and Bill Mantlo go through the, the motions of really setting up why they're doing it, what their motivations are. And the fact that none of these people like each other, 
that was my other big takeaway is that they're all working together, but they're all working together because it's convenient for the moment. And the moment this is over, they're all going to start fighting each other. So uh, I thought that was kind of cool. And, you know, there are some things you won't understand. Like there's a scene with a, a character named Gargawax who was a villain of the Doom Patrol. That was this complete joke. And they treat him like a complete joke. So I could see that kind of like, you know, going over somebody's head who's not familiar with the DC universe. But I think it still plays kind of cool without it. Uh, what did you guys think of the Adam Strange end of it? Uh, I thought it was a pretty smart idea. You know, he's like, well, you should take me, you know, you know, you, you should give me up because I'm going to get um, once the, once the Zeta Ray wears off, I'll be pulled back to Earth anyway. So I'll be able to get out of whatever prison they hold me in and I can get some information and I so it, that was like a nice little twist to it, although it doesn't quite work out the way he had hoped. <laughs> no, because he's immediately taken into custody because <laughs> there's like a Kaplund delegation already on Earth, and they just happened to go to the island that he was on. Where his helicopter was stashed, yeah. Uh, the other twist is the Daxamites, who are there merely as observers. Was this their this, first introduction? After the post, after In the post-crisis universe, yes. Oh, okay. Because and, Monel was a Daxamite, or mm-hmm. is... But was he a Daxamite in pre-crisis yes. era? Oh, okay. All right. I, I couldn't. I wasn't one hundred percent sure on that. So, and they discover, hey, on Earth we have superpowers, but they decide not to do anything with it because they're there merely as observers, so they're going to stick to that role, uh, which ends up going very poorly for the <laughs> for the Alliance in the second issue. But, mm-hmm. but still, I just. I just love this, and maybe it's because I am such a DC kid that it's just like, it's like taking all, you know what this is like? This is like the same feeling I had when Annihilation hit in Marvel. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, Whereas, you know what, it, it does have a somewhat similar feel to it. Just, just the whole, the, whole yeah. uh, the scope of the story. It, it, to me, that that's what feels similar about it, and the, and the fact that it's, you know, it, it, it's Again, I hate to keep using the same word, but the meatiness of it, the, the fact that there's so much going on, but when you can look at it the right way, it seems to all make sense. Yeah, if you are, like I said, if you're super plugged into this, this is just, this is all like, you know, you're a kid in a candy store. Uh, if you're not, this first issue is going to be a little bit of a slog to read, but I, but I suggest people keep reading because I think once you get into the second issue, things pick up significantly and you start seeing some more familiar faces you know dealing with the overall threat what i will say about this issue is uh in my opinion having gone through all three now i do see a difference as we go through now the first two issues uh todd mcfarlane is the the penciler i think the first issue and a half yeah okay and then we have uh what is it uh also i'm drawing a blank Keith Giffen uh, pinch hits in the back half of the second issue because for some reason McFarlane just didn't finish it. Uh, and then in the third issue, you have Bart, Bart Sears. Sears. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it's there's definitely the artwork is inconsistent, I'm going to say, throughout because mm-hmm. it's just not a steady feel. But I think overall, I have to say this issue is the artwork that I enjoy the most of the three. Yes, I would agree with that. It's some pretty solid early McFarlane. This is right around the time that he was hopping on Amazing Spider-Man for the first time. 
But, yeah, but so, in, in the second issue, and we're going to talk about it more, I don't really like his work on the superheroes very much. Especially Superman? Spe- especially Superman's cape, which is just ridiculous. Well, and, and he's holding it. Well, that's because that's like his, maybe his pre-Spawn. You know, because well, Spawn's and, cape could get away from you, too. And, Bart and that sees, goes... Oh, I'm sorry, also go goes in, I'm sorry. But that also goes into his Batman work on the last three parts of Batman Year Two. Or Batman's cape was all over the freaking place. And yeah, we could. I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit more, I guess, when we get to that issue. And in the third issue, I have some some pluses and minuses. But overall, I thought this was the most consistent issue of the three, artwork wise. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a combination. It was a little bit more consistent than the other two. And I thought some of the scenes, particularly some of the space scenes, were done in a very dynamic way. And the aliens just look cool in this. Mm-hmm. And so, it and it really goes everywhere. You I mean you're you're like all over the universe. You go to the netherworld where the specter gets called by the lords of order and basically told that he has to stay out of it. That's a, that's because, a cool touch too, because otherwise the uh, lords of chaos are going to get involved and it's going to become worse. And, and there's just and what I liked about that is it's showing kind of a lot of thought put into the idea of what such an alliance would would you know entail and also you know like drawing on real world parallels where sometimes the united states won't get involved in something because it'll destabilize whatever area in the world it's going on it's going it on in so they have to you know we have to kind of stay out or another power has to stay out because if they go in here something bad's going to happen over there and i felt yeah i kind of saw that too with where's the daxamites were because i'm putting quote fingers up you can't see where they were quote unquote observers like other countries have been in the past and then they end up taking a more active role once they get there mm-hmm. but only against one guy mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, but, but, it, but yeah the uh, uh like the detail of the art on the ships in space and the dominator tech like when they're looking at the view screens with a lot of the biological stuff and 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 the Dominators themselves are really, really detailed. Yeah, I like the way the Dominators look in this issue. Although I think throughout the series I like the way the Dominators look. I don't want to be unfair. Yeah, the, the ships all have distinctive looks to them as well. Like each each civilization has a has a different type of style to their flying vessels. And then you have the Durlins that form just bio are the ships. vessels. <laughs> yeah, they are their just, own vessels. Which is just a neat concept. And then you have the Guild Span who basically fly around in giant globes. And it's just like, you know, you, you're looking at this and this is like, you know, like cracking through a Star Trek concept art book uh, mm. with some of the ships. So I, I'll agree with you that consistently the first issue has the best art. Uh, I think sometimes the coloring lets it down because there's one shot of Adam Strange and the lighting makes his hair look brown. And I didn't know who it was for a second. I thought we had switched to another character. Uh, and McFarlane, as much as I like McFarlane as an artist, I, there is a certain quality to how he draws hair that drives me crazy. Like mm-hmm. it always has to have, uh, unless they're like Garen Beck, uh, who has kind of a crop top going on or, you know, uh, the guy who would be uh, the Kaluan who ends up being Vril Dox, uh, who is a ancestor of, or uh, somehow related to Brainiac and an ancestor to Brainiac five. All the men have like these hairs with like little like bouffant things going on in the front. Like oh, yeah. suddenly it's the fifties again. And we're just, you know, twirling our hair before we're leaving the house. Yeah. yeah uh, that's true. They I think it's all page, the DA going. 
I think it's page forty where he t- where where his hair is like a different color, mm-hmm. and like three panels above, it's 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 blonde, and then suddenly it's it's brown, and it's going like way out in the front, like Buster Poindexter, you know. <laughs> Adam Strange is hot, hot, hot. Da, da, da. Where are you going? Which floor? I'm, <laughs> I'm in the star leg. I'm gonna break out because it's hot, hot, hot. And, and I will see say the scene where the warden of the Starlag kills a bunch of random prisoners because Adam Strange escaped. It was just like that was kind of hardcore. Oh yeah. <laughs> like they're not pulling any punches on this one. But, <laughs> Did anybody else uh, was it page 49 the panel where it says welcome to earth? Did you read that as Will Smith? from uh <laughs> welcome to earth i did not but that's I mean, obviously they didn't intend that that no because this was prior this predates to that. It. yeah but uh yeah by, but not quite a say it, I'm, I'm gonna think that every time now welcome to earth <laughs> i also like bill mantlow's uh dialogue he he has a good mix of humor sometimes very dark humor as well but he seems to have a good grasp of who all the players are and giving them all kind of distinctive voices you know, even if the Kuns and the Dominators are all pretty much the same, that kind of goes into the fact that that's what their cultures are like. You know, the, the Dominators are have this caste system going on where the size of the dot on your forehead, you know, basically is where you are in society. So when one of the Dominators who has a small smaller dot that is just a researcher oversteps his bounds, everyone's just kind of horrified by it. Like, shut uh, up. <laughs> Pretty much. Now, another another just artwork observation for me is I thought, and this could just be, I don't know if this is reality or if this is just my own perception or preconceived notions, but the fact that the breakdowns were by Keith Giffen and not by McFarlane, I thought improved the storytelling over what I normally see from McFarlane. But again, I'm not 100% sure if that's reality or just my preconceived yeah. prejudices against Todd McFarlane. Uh, Giffen has a tendency to do that with his work. He will basically provide the artist with... Uh, in, in 52, he did that. He did all of the art breakdowns, and then the artist would come in and kind of work over that. And that was just for expedience sake. Since they were doing a weekly series, they wanted to um, they, they wanted a consistent look for it. So they had the same guy kind of designing all the pages. Whereas here, I think it was more of we have three 80-page issues that have to come out on a monthly basis. The fastest way to get that done is to give the artist not only lead time, but a guide to go by. So when they get the artwork back to dialogue it, you know they kind of know where they're going with it, essentially. So it was probably for the sake of expediency that they did that. But I think I think the story is also well served for them having done it. Mm, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you have when you have the main guy, you know, who who has his his head in both story and art, like Keith Giffen does, uh, you know, it's it's only going to end up probably being better that he's the one kind of controlling the majority of the uh, of of how everything's being laid out. So I I, I just <laughs> this first issue, I just pity. And I, and I felt bad as I was reading it. I was like, what have I done to Paul and Bill? Because I didn't know y'all's DC knowledge base. Uh, so it's just like, feels like I, I pushed you guys into the deep end. <laughs> well, it, it, no, it no, showed no. me that, that my what, what I thought my knowledge of DC was is not quite as good as I thought it was. 
<laughs> yeah, because when we get to the third issue, I've got a I've got a few questions, but but lately since I've really gotten into the DC universe on TV, and occasionally when they'll mention a name, I'll go online and I'll research that name and go, oh wow, okay, so that's an existing character, or I'll actually recognize some characters and I'll and I'll kind of geek out. So I'm assuming for you, Mike. Between Arrow, I mean, I, I don't know if you're watching all the shows. I, I'm sure you're watching Supergirl. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and Legends of Tomorrow. I mean, you've got to be geeking out big time. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't follow Arrow just because I haven't really watched it historically in the past. Mm-hmm. And jumping in now, I just, I, I was explaining this to one of my friends that, that watches the shows with us that uh arrow seems to be something that i think i would like in trade paperback form like well, i'd like Netflix to binge is, watch a season well that's what i did i started i started watching flash with partway through season two went back and caught up uh, on it and then started to watch arrow because i realized that they crossed over and then when season four of arrow came out it was coming out normal and I was at the same time watching seasons one through three on Netflix and then caught up to everything and try to keep up now as it goes along so that I'm, I'm up on everything. And watching it all at one time was pretty good. Well, yeah, every time I watch a new episode of something, I'm just like, oh, my God, they referenced such and such. Mm-hmm. Like, like, does the writer's room just have a who's who in it? And when they're <laughs> stuck, they just go to that. I mean, that would be awesome. Uh but, you know, this this particular issue is more like, hey, were you a big fan of the Legion or the New Teen Titans? Well, here's something for you. Because DC, historically DC's space characters are only centered on a couple different properties. Mostly the Legion of Superheroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that deals on a more universal level. Uh, but because of Starfire being part of the New Teen Titans, they kind of explored for that further. And you have the Green Lantern Corps which kind of goes on a cosmic level. So, But if you're not reading those books, if you're sticking with Superman or Batman or The Flash or even Wonder Woman, you're not seeing these characters all that often. So, And the Omega Men first appeared in Green Lantern. And, but then, and then, but then but they, were, they were tied kind of close with the Teen Titans for a little bit because of Starfire. Yeah, exactly. Well. So it's kind of like uh, in Marvel, It's it, 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 this would be like if the Skrulls, the Kree... And the Shi'ar, Shi'ar all got together to do something <laughs> instead of just use Earth as their, you know, their battleground, essentially. So I keep in this stuff that I kind of get all the like little references and I get a lot out of it. Uh, but I think on a story level, it's pretty straightforward and kind of engaging because you're, 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 you're watching all the machinations of these different people coming together and you see the Kuns are there just because they, they just love to fight the dominators are pulling the strings and have their own agendas. And, you know, it's like you don't really get to see why the Gildish fan or the, or, you know, the, the Thanagarians are there because they want everything to be a police state, uh, which I am not as familiar with Hawkman as other heroes. So I'm not quite sure where that fits with the Thanagar that has been presented in the DC universe up to this point, because this is before Hawkworld when it's a more militaristic race. So I don't know if something happened like during the, the, the Shadow War of Hawkman that went on a couple years before this, if that kind of turned the Thanagarians into this more aggressive culture instead of, hey, two of their two of their members came to Earth and became superheroes. 
Well, it, it does seem to fit, though, with the character of Hawkman as he's presented. Like, when they try to present him and uh, Ali, you know, Green Arrow, yeah. as being totally opposed oh, to yeah. their political views, that, you know, Hawkman is to- you know very, very conservative, very right-wing, whereas Ali is very left-wing. And, you know, I mean... As somebody who is pretty conservative, I I do not believe in a police state, uh, but but you could understand where that would be on the very very far right wing. Yeah, if that's what his culture is, he's not so much right wing as this is what he was raised in, so he doesn't really know anything else. So he'd be kind of turned off by you know some you know goateed hippie arguing with everything they want to do, uh, which seemed to be Green Arrow's function there for a couple decades. So. But I was never a reader of the Omega Men, uh, and I have not gone back and read the Omega Men, because here's the funny thing. I really liked this, but I can't dive into the more science fiction-only titles. It's really funny. I think the only reason I like this issue so much is that in the second and third issue, I have more entry point characters. So this is all set up to the... This is the appetizer, and the rest of it is the you know main course of the dessert. Yeah, as, as like I was saying earlier, I had read some Omega Men back in the day, and the attraction to me back then was that was one of the books that DC was putting out on the Baxter line, mm-hmm. and you know I automatically was kind of drawn to that. So I had picked up I don't know how many of the issues when it first came out, and and I was reading it, and I, I you know I had not read it in Green Lantern at all, so I wasn't familiar with them before I started reading the series, and I don't have a great memory of what happened in those issues. But I do remember reading it at the time and being entertained by it. So I do think it was a pretty good series, but I just couldn't tell you why. <laughs> uh, we got anything else on issue one? Uh, I think we, I'm sorry, but you could give whatever you have else, Bill. No, I just I really like the, the side profile shot of the Dominator on page 67 when yes. he's taking up the whole side of this page. Yes. And you can really see, because in a lot of the other shots, you can't see just how the way their face goes way down below where they're, where like a humanoid chin would be. It drops down like another three, four inches to almost down past the Adam's apple to maybe the top of the breastbone with the teeth just on both sides, on the top and bottom. It's it's really pretty striking, pretty scary looking. Yeah, I think I like that's that a very one. cool look. And they don't seem to have any discernible nose from that angle. Yeah, yeah, I don't see any nostrils at all. So, so that, but, uh, they don't know if they stink or not. Yeah. Yeah. Dominators don't know dominators stink. <laughs> I think, I think then, we should hold off on ratings until we've done all three. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll agree with that. I'm ready to then move on to book two, two oh, you guys are. Very good. Sure. Let's, uh, <laughs> moving on to issue two, um, everyone fights. Uh, no, that's, okay, that, what do you think of it? No. <laughs> fight, 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 fight. No, the, um, the opening of the issue basically wow. recounts all who all the players are. Yeah, uh, kind of goes over what's been happening in all of the crossover issues. Yeah, like the first three, what, first five, five pages basically is mm-hmm. the first two is recap, and then it looks like page three or five are all your... I'm assuming are all the crossovers. Yeah, this is like a panel at a time, like just kind of talking about, you know, like one of my favorites is the Cahoons use the teleporters in the Australian Justice League embassy to try to get to New York. 
but something goes wrong and they're all shrunken down. So it's Oberon the dwarf fighting a bunch of shrunken aliens. Okay, I was wondering about that because it said a battalion of mini commandos, and I'm like, they had mini commandos? I didn't realize it was the teleporter that screwed up. Yeah, it was the teleporter that <laughs> screwed up. It's, it's actually a really great issue. Uh, <laughs> but, and we also go over the fact that uh, Celsius, who was the leader of the Doom Patrol, died in the Doom Patrol issue, uh, which took place uh, under the sea. After that, we, we see the gathering of all the heroes. Uh, and in charge are Amanda Waller, Captain Adam, and General Wade Eiling. Uh, Superman has brokered a ceasefire, uh, because, you know, you send an alien to talk to aliens. And basically, they all go through the different scenarios that they can th- that they have at their disposal, uh, ruling out, of course, nuclear weapons, uh, even though it has to be explained to Blue Beetle why this is the case. Yeah, I was and... a little taken aback by that. Like, what? <laughs> so... Um... And Amanda Waller steps forward to say that they're going to also call in the supervillains because basically it's their world too. And after a, another recap from the alien standpoint, the superheroes basically break the ceasefire an hour early and attack Australia. And we get like a like about 10 to 30, 20 pages of superheroes just fighting back against the various alien uh, species. Superman destabilizes the battleground in Australia, causing the Daxamites to step in, and they're pretty much kicking his ass for a little bit. Uh, through the through the course of the issue, people are acting weird, and sometimes they have little glowy glowy stuff around them, and that turns out to be Dead Man kind of messing with the alien uh, alliance, which I thought was really cool. Uh, Lex Luthor tries to get out of the act, but he is told politely but firmly that he needs to stay out of it. And eventually they are able to route the aliens off of the planet. Meanwhile, we discover that the Dominator from the first issue that had the small dot that it had interrupted everybody has figured out that the reason why humans develop superpowers is a genetic defect that, when activated, basically causes physical or mental transformations within the human. And he's figured out a way to counteract this. So the Daxamites start to weaken because they are vulnerable to the lead in the atmosphere, and Superman basically brings them out of the Earth to save them, and they're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second... We're fighting you, but you saved us when our allies basically left us to die. So the, da- the so one of their number, who is actually the father to Largand, who is Monel, by the way, sacrifices himself to send a message back to Daxum to basically say, "Hey, we need to throw in with the Earth." And as the heroes are, you know, basically having their final battle in space, the Daxamites show up and side with the humans. And it's a really kick-ass space battle where where essentially a battalion of supermen along with the superheroes start fighting back against the Alliance and they're able to drive them off and the Earth is saved, especially with the help of Dead Man. And the final page is... Uh, actually, the final pages are, are news broadcast kind of bringing up everybody... Uh, up to speed and everything. And the last thing is, in other news, the tiny Gulf state of Bialya, taking advantage of the confusion, has invaded the neighbor nation of Kunish. Some things, it seems, never change. And that's the end of the issue. It's a little abrupt, but man, I love this book. God, I love this issue so much. It's just, it is nothing but superheroes fighting against aliens. 
and there's a couple like hell yeah moments in there. I mean, it's just it's brilliant. Here come the Daxamites. <laughs> Thought it was here come the judge. <laughs> well, what? Okay, maybe you can answer this this question. Why does Wally West's dad blow himself up? Wally West's dad uh, turned out to be one of the Manhunters during Money. Uh, that's okay. So he's kind of making up for the fact that he turned against his son during that whole thing. So it's kind of him. But wasn't he in? Oh, but so that was a different Manhunter that was in Havana? Or was that him as the Manhunter in Havana helping okay. Wally? That Manhunter is Mark Shaw, who was... The original Manhunter? Yeah, the, the, he was the privateer. He's a clone of that of the original Mark Shaw. Uh, but he was also at one point known as the privateer and he was part of the suicide squad. And after millennium, he adopted the name Manhunter and put on that cool costume that he's wearing. And mm. he's in Cuba helping out Wally, who is basically teamed up with Fidel Castro. All right. So the other Manhunters are the ones we're talking about that was from the guard or the ones from. Yeah, they were the predecessors. Millennium. To the okay. Corps. Yes. Right. OK. All right. My head is starting to hurt. <laughs> That's, you know, I, and I read this more or less, and again, I, I, you know, this was a very meaty read and I had to, I had to kind of get through it quicker than I would have liked. I would have liked to have sat and really just, you know, chewed up each page individually and, and taken my time with it, but I kind of had to get it read in time to come on with you guys. So I, I didn't have time to really spend on, on each page. And I kind of read this issue more, I, I kind of left some of the subtlety behind and just read it as a, uh, as a battle issue, effectively. Mm. So. Well, it, it's pretty much what it is. I mean, the, the, if everything in the first issue was set up, this is the war that follows. And there's some twists and turns along the way. And, you know, you have the dead man thing, uh, which actually goes back to the first meeting of the superheroes. If you look on page... Uh, getting to it myself. Six. If you if you look on page six, there is a a, a guy. I noticed the a guy glowing down there, right right at the bottom, and I, yep. I I couldn't figure out why he was glowing. That's Dead Man. Okay, that makes sense now. Kind of listening in on everything later in the uh, yeah in, in the story. Mm -hmm. Now, but, Eiling, that's the one. Uh, just to jump to the TV, that's the one that that Clancy Brown was playing on the Flash, right? Yes. Same yes. Character? Yeah. Yeah, he's um. He's a little more, there's a little more depth with him in the comics because he he was the man that was kind of behind uh, having Nathaniel Adam, who was an Air Force uh, pilot that was accused of a crime he didn't commit. And he took part in an, uh, an experiment to be wrapped in this alien metal and drop and a nuclear weapon was detonated around him. And it's basically, if you survive, you'll be pardoned. And Eiling was kind of the guy that set all that up. Not mm. the not the framing him, but you know, just set up you know his, his what happened in Nathaniel Adam. And he eventually, after Nathaniel Adam is believed to be dead, marries Nathaniel Adam's wife. And Captain Adam's daughter looks at Eiling as his her father almost. And that's oh. a lot of the conflict happening at the beginning of that series. So Captain Adam and this guy work together, but they don't like each other at all. Mm. Oh, I can see why. Which you don't get here. That's just stuff that... Well, yeah, there's two... Separately, so... Uh, now, I think, you know, the first half of this book is penciled by McFarland on Giffen's breakdowns. 
and the second half is penciled by Giffen himself. Yes. And personally, I, I think the second half is far superior to the first half. Uh, and not only for Superman's cape, which is just absolutely <laughs> stupid in the way it's drawn. Well, Superman's not consistent in the way he's drawn. Between page 7 to 8... Uh, but yeah, I, and I it all... overall, it's it's just... To me, the Giffen art is superior. The, the Giffen art reminds me of Giffen on Legion of Superheroes, which was some of the best stuff that I think I've seen in you know, in in that era. Certainly, some of the best stuff that was coming out. Uh, whereas the McFarlane stuff, just again, you know, it's racked with inconsistency as far as I'm concerned. I think he took more time on the first issue, and he was kind of rushing through this. So a lot of the detail that was pretty. Uh, that was evident in the first issue. I mean, if you look like on page 22, the Daxamite in that third panel, his face is all over the place. And then you go like two pages later to page 24. What the hell is up with Aqualad? I mean, (laughs) he's like five years old, I think. Yeah. He looks more like Billy Billy Batson than he does uh, Aqualad. (laughs) But then like two pages later, Aquaman's looking like a boss swimming through the water. So, I just I maybe it's the inkers that are kind of failing him, but I don't think so. I think one I, of his uh, problems in this issue are his facial drawings. Yeah, and I wonder if, like you said, because he rushed into it, maybe he did leave a lot of it for the inkers. And on uh, on that same page, uh, what is it, twenty four with with Aqualad, the shot next to it of Robot Man, it looks like he's got one buck tooth. <laughs> Dar, <laughs> I'm Robot Man. Um... <laughs> Yeah, and, we can't and Aquaman's laugh, he's he's behind him laughing at him like you dummy. <laughs> I, I wonder if this was one of those things because at one point Mark Farlin said that when when like when he did the the adjectiveless Spider-Man series, he would draw a bunch of pages, throw them on the ground, and then put them in order after that. And I'm mm. kind of wondering if he skipped around and like concentrated on certain pages. Uh, and then left others to kind of that are less boring because it seems like if there's a lot of action or if there are a lot of hero shots like that Aquaman page I was talking about Aquaman looks great so I'm wondering if there was some some sense of him like well maybe I could sell this on the aftermarket and this page would be worth more than this boring page yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's just me speculating I, I have no firsthand knowledge of all that uh, but like going over and, to page twenty-seven, look at Firestorm's face in that middle panel. <laughs> yeah, he's asking who number two works for. Uh, or in page twenty-nine, Superman's face after he just got beat down. <laughs> Dar. Yeah, I, I just, I'm not I'm not happy with his facial renderings in this in this half of the issue, and I I think it could be that a lot of that was left to the inking, and I didn't see who inked this. Uh, uh, Pete, Pete Craig, Craig Russell, Russell did the first chapter, and then it seems like it Al was, it, yeah. And I think Al the pages we're been... pointing to, I think, are Al Gordon. So, but Lex, the page thirty-four with Lex Luthor looks awesome. Yeah. So I, I, th- I think the hallmark of this issue is the inconsistency in the art, and you kind of gloss over that when you're not really paying attention because you're kind of struck up in the action of the piece, and that you have all the heroes you know, giving their all in this battle. But then you get to page 39 and all the Daxamites are in space. It looks like a jumbled mess. And it really doesn't help that their costumes are purple and black against a black background. (laughs) So, I mean, the best thing about that page was the panel design of the last one being the Superman shield. But Superman's face looks like crap in it. So, 
and and his cape just is so ridiculous to it. it it really just it was very it bothered me a lot i hate to keep mentioning the same thing but it was just so over the top big there is a there is a great gag in an issue of superman after uh he returned from being dead uh where he's towing this giant ship and jurgens uh, dan jurgens as an artist played with the cape but never went as ridiculous as this it always kind of it always kind of went up to that line, but never crossed it. But Superman's cape was all wild, and he was covered in chains. And he says, "I, I just hope no one thinks I'm trying to spawn a new look." <laughs> so uh, I, I think McFarlane could have been a good Superman artist. I don't think Superman has served well in his pages in this issue. In in particular, page seven when he first has Superman come out, and he's got the giant shoulder cape. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> and he also looks 12 in most panels. So, and I know that McFarlane as a style had a more, all of his characters had a more youthful expression. But again, it's just, unlike the first issue, which was some really boss science fiction art, here we're now more into the meat and potatoes of superheroes and he keeps dropping the ball. Whereas in the second part of it, I'm not a big Keith Giffen fan art-wise, but I appreciated the consistency of it. See, I, like, that, I liked Keith Giffen in that era very much. This was after he started adopting that other style that was a little more out there. So I, I think you see that like, much of it in this issue. Yeah. I, 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 the more I look at it, the more I think you're right, and that I was just coming under pre- preconceived notions as I keep rereading this. I mean, page 43 in particular is this really great, like you get a full headshot of that Dominator and then you have the page design of all the all the bodies uh, copied from the the main one where they're showing the metagene, uh, and and I just I, and I'm done. Andrew's okay, done. who's next? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no, but but um, what I liked as a kid because I was about 12 years old when this came out. What I liked as a kid was they gave the gobbledygook science explanation of it but it reads so smooth of how superpowers develop that I really bought into it. It's just like, oh, that's why superheroes are superheroes. And nowadays I'd be a little more annoyed that Giffen and and the other creators took what is kind of a random event and kind of put everyone under the same blanket. Like if you're not an alien or have external powers like a Green Lantern ring, you are a you have a genetic defect that gives you those powers. Yeah, I, so, I, I, I mm-hmm. accept that. I think, but you know, then when you start combining that with, so you got this guy who's a, got the genetic defect, and they had to have this series of events yeah. in order to trigger the superpowers. It does start to get a little bit out there, but then you can kind of. I'm, I'm thinking this through as I'm saying it. The fact that they had seven people show that potential, which was far more than they expected. That says to me that, you know, that kind of explains why you would get the number of heroes that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that, I, I don't know. I mean, I know I'm not giving any kind of a rational explanation of it, but maybe it makes sense to you as well. No, I, I think I understand what you're saying. That be that even though it is a blanket explanation and kind of ties everybody together, it does justify why seven of the fifty people survived, mm-hmm. and they were a random sampling of humanity. And it's and like I could they, take it more to the Marvel universe and and the origins that they have. Like that would explain why Bruce Banner would survive the Gamma Bomb, but maybe 
so many other people would have been killed by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or why it affects him the way it does, but it doesn't affect the abomination in the same way. Or it doesn't affect the leader, whereas with the leader, the effects are temporary. Whereas with Bruce Banner, it's ongoing. So the the kind of differences in that does kind of, that, that does kind of explain it. My uh, my favorite moment in this entire issue is on page sixty six. The Daxamites have shown up and have thrown their lot with the Earth, and it's this great. The way it's paced out is just great. Like the captain of this ship is just like, okay, let them know, and you know, like humanity's like hooray, and the 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 alliance is pissed. But on sixty six, the Thanagarians target Superman. And the Daxamites are like, okay, we told you, if you attack them, you're attacking us, and they blow the Thanagarians <laughs> away. And that, that would be I mean, uh, full full uh, hairpiece William Shatner doing it. Yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> Khan two era Shatner. But it's just such a fun a fun moment where the tide is turning, and now you know after after losing Australia and after the battle on Earth. You know, going well, but not going the way they really want it to. Suddenly, you know, like this alliance is breaking down. Now, to be fair, everything would have fallen apart if the Dominator was able to uh, affect the uh, press the green button, essentially, uh, which would kind of, you know, destroy everybody. But Dead Man shows up and presses the red button and then jumps into the cahoon and has him blow his own brains out. Uh, <laughs> I liked his reaction to that, too. Yeah, dying the first time is bad enough, but facing the moments of death inside of aliens always gives me the willies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of cool that Dead Man was there the entire time. Like, he, once you know that and go back and you see it, it's just like, oh, okay. But here it's just like a great reveal. And the it ultimate kinda, infiltrator. And it kind of draws in, like, you know, we saw the specter in the first issue, so the magic characters were kind of represented with that, and we know why they're staying out of it. This is basically the, we're going to shoot the Hulk off to Planet Hulk because we don't want to have to deal with him in Civil War. You know, that, that that's kind of the sense I got. It's like, look, if we get the specter involved with this, that ruins the entire story because the specter can do anything. So let's give them a in-story reason to not participate. But here we get a guy that... I like Dead Man, but he's not one of my favorite characters. But I love when he's used like this, where he, you know, he's just popping around, not really, you know, serving humanity, but humanity doesn't know that he's helping them essentially, unless there is a crossover I'm missing, which is entirely possible because I haven't read each and every one of these crossovers because there's a thousand of them. Yeah, we, well, we so, went through that earlier. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's definitely uh, daunting. But but some of them are quite good, especially the Superman ones. Because uh, you have Superman really cut loose in Superman number twenty six and fighting the Thanagarians, and it's basically it's basically the Superman that has had enough of everybody's shit <laughs> <laughs> and is just tired of seeing his 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 hometown get destroyed. So, but you know, and that's kind of the the cool thing about this uh, as as a crossover. Not to get too much into the crossover issues because we've got enough to cover here. Uh, but the great thing about the crossovers to this story is that the ones that participated really took advantage of the fact that they're, you know, that something huge is happening and they get to put their characters through those paces and people are teaming up like Firestorm, you know, Power Girl gets involved and then Firestorm and Power Girl end up over in Starman's title 
So there's this really neat, like, kind of, like, not only is it the heroes getting together, but it's heroes interacting in their own titles in ways that they've never done before. So, and I think that's another reason why I like this series so much and like this crossover is that unlike Millennium, which to me was very organized, but God, you're just, it's, it's just like, you know, who's betraying who in this issue here, there's more of an external threat. So it's kind of cooler to see the heroes having to go through that instead of each and everyone being betrayed by the last person they suspect, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I would say it does. Mm-hmm. And better put than I could have said. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is this was the first issue I read. I just picked it up blind. Oh, uh, wow. And it was one of the... Because, you know, Superman was crossing over into it. But, you know, sometimes the reason why I didn't follow Millennium as closely as this one is that the newsstand distribution of Millennium, because that was before I was even thinking of going to a comic shop, the newsstand distribution of Millennium was crap. Like one of the one of the the spinner racks in the Trexertown Mall, which is where I got the bulk of my comics, carried it. But it was a weekly series, and I wasn't going to the store every week because I was twelve. And you know, outside of not having transportation or the disposable income to do so, I wasn't like I was picking this up, but picking all of this up. But this was issue two, and there was only an issue three. So it's like, okay, this is a more expensive book but I can kind of justify it because it takes me longer to read it. Mm-hmm. So, which is not a problem I have today. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, but this was my first issue. So this was my, like, holy crap, look at all these characters. Look at all these superheroes. Look at look at all the, oh my, I want to know who that guy is. And I want to know who that guy is. And I want to know who that girl is. And it was just, it's like, I was like a kid in a candy store, quite literally. Okay, you know, well, as the only comic. place I can help you on is, that girl, Marlo Thomas. <laughs> See, now you got into something I, I actually know. I just threw my hat up into the air and it froze. <laughs> no, that's Mary Tyler Moore. That's Mary Tyler Moore. See, this is how much I don't know. That uh, that girl's just the one where she sees herself in the mannequins in the windows. Oh, right? yeah, the mannequin that's winks right. at her. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's da, not freaky da, at all. Da, da, that girl. <laughs> Having hallucinations. So what did you think as a 12-year-old kid of the Flash blowing up on the um, Dominator spaceship? I was just like, what the hell happened? Oh, it's like, a bomb. I, oh, it's I, like... I didn't... Yeah, but I, I, I'm like, what the... And then I t- turned the page, Flash bomb. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> but what I liked about that is that Eiling turns down, or the General turns down Lex Luthor's help, and his first thought is, I wonder how Superman would fare against that. You hear, all, you hear Clancy <laughs> Brown on that page, like yeah. hard. <laughs> Superman. What? 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 Um. Did you by any chance read the Flash? Like, did he get captured in the Flash crossover, and you didn't know what was going on, or? Um. No. He. The Flash crossover is weird. Um. Because you have him going to Cuba, and he's having problems with his powers, and then he hooks up with the Resistance on Cuba that are fighting the Durlins, and halfway through the issue. He's in his tent, and this girl comes and sleeps with him. But it turns out it's a Durlin who tries to kill him, and that Durlin is taken out by Manhunter. Ew. So it's it's really kind of strange. No, that that he didn't get captured. Uh, he was just constantly fighting uh, in 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 the issue. So there there isn't really anything. Mm. The, the thing about the crossovers is that they fit, but it's just like 
all this stuff happens, here's them in this issue, and then the next action is after this issue. So there's no interweaving, really, of what's going on here, uh, unless it's in one of the ones that I haven't read yet, which is possible. It was a nice touch with Luther having the metallic hand because, you know, he lost it because of his exposure to kryptonite with his kryptonite ring. And that had only happened a couple of months before this, because this was this was after the Supergirl saga. And it was during that time period where Superman thought it was uh, having episodes where he would black out and become gangbuster. Mm hmm. And uh, it was it was during the, the which I believe will tie into issue three. Yes, it does. Cause, yeah, because all that happens after he's learned all that and has left Earth and exiled himself. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, there, there, <laughs> you can really tell uh, when a person is in love with a comic book universe because the stuff, like everything about a certain story, is great for them because it ties into that era that they love the most. Whereas if you're not emotionally involved, maybe it's not as cool. Uh, well, but okay. well, Paul, Paul, on page third, third you you might get into this because on page thirty-seven, one of our former um, interns that applied, Captain, Captain Boomerang, makes an appearance. Did you mm -hmm. did you catch him there? I did yeah. see him. Not sure if you heard that when he was on the show, Mike applying for a position. Uh, I must have missed that one, but now I got to go back and hear it. Well, yeah, because that's when the Suicide Squad gets into it. <laughs> Well, why would you want a guy named Digger on your team? Oh, we never even got to his name. He didn't well, we get didn't past know we Paul got to his name. Yeah, Captain Boomerang. And his brother. Sergeant Rock, Paper, Scissors. That's awful. Yes, it's it funny, is. but it's awful. And that's why it was funny. Bad jokes abound. Uh, let's see. Let's see if I had anything else in this one. I think I I think it, does it get the Martian Manhunter fly in space or am I mistaken or is that only in a cartoon? No, he should be. Able oh to, wait, I, I think I know why he's covered up because of the fire. Yeah, I believe. That's okay, it. duh. All right, I should have realized that, but I was like, wait, why is he in? Why is it because they are in space? But or is it because there's so much? Because but he's in like a spacesuit on page fifty. Mm-hmm. There might have been an explanation of that. I do not know it right now. So I'm mm. going to let you down on that that answer. I'm sorry. Uh, I, you're not letting me down, man. It's I, it's I'm, okay. I'm, I'll go clean out my desk. and uh, You're fired! <laughs> take my and little then, box of stuff home. And then the Ed... <laughs> Pack up your box. Let's go. The Ed 209 <laughs> will blow you away. No, I was thinking I'd be more like uh, Bobcat Goldthwait and Scrooged. <laughs> where I just keep trying to get drunk and I can't. <laughs> no, it's okay. We'll go live in a studio apartment. It'll be fine. <laughs> right, what do you think? Should we move on to issue three? <clears throat> oh, issue three. Issue three, at the very beginning, carries off of the ending to most of the crossover issues where suddenly there is this detonation in the atmosphere and everything's kind of turned inside out. And it turns out that the... The Dominator with a little dot that we've been seeing has basically developed a bomb yes. that w exposes all of the heroes to this basically atmospheric disturbance, which over-energizes their metagene and causes them to basically start to burn out. So all of the heroes that aren't affected by this are pulled together and go to... <laughs> it's kind of funny. They get into space, 
and they meet up with the Omega Men who have ex- uh, have escaped and, and, and the, the surviving humans who've escaped from Starlag. And they immediately have to go to the Dominion homeworld, <laughs> which is where they just came from. So they mm-hmm. go to the Dominion homeworld. They figure out what's going on. They find out, thanks to John Jones's uh, telepathy, how to cure the heroes that are all de- throughout the entire course of the issue dying on Earth. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, we lose one of the members of the Doom Patrol. And once they're there, they're like, okay, we know how to fix it, but holy crap, the equipment we need is at that prison. So they have to break back into the prison to get the equipment, all the while, you know, basically participating in a running gun battle. But eventually they're able to cure the heroes of Earth, and the invasion is over, and all is well. All right, there's one thing I got to know, and I didn't look it up because I wanted to see if you could answer it. Who the hell is Dr. Megala? He looks like the guy, the chief from the Doom Patrol with the beard, right? Because it's been so long since I've read those issues. He's like the main doctor they keep coming to. He's got the red Nick Fury eye patch going on and the big bushy red beard. He's and he cool, looks bro. like, he, yeah, he's got I think one. It's Dr. He's, Faustus. <laughs> And who's is and who is the guy that keeps pushing him around everywhere? He's like, like his giant manservant. I'm just like, who is this guy? Megala is Megilla Gorilla. Oh. Yeah, Megilla <laughs> Gorilla. He is part of Captain Adam's like back characters. Ah, okay. So he's one of the science guys in Captain Adam, if I'm remembering that correctly. It's either Captain Adam or Blue Beetle. I'm. Mm siding more with the way he looks that he's Captain Adam. So he's just one of those characters that if you're reading Captain Adam, you know exactly who he is. If not, who in the hell is this freaky looking guy? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Like, who is this guy? I have no idea. Oh, and so Snapper Car, he could just snap his fingers haha, and teleport. Uh, uh, uh. Well, those that crew becomes known as the Blasters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they said to you know see them in their ongoing or like a blaster special number one, which was written by Peter David and was very funny. I enjoyed it. It was basically all of them trying to go back to their normal lives and not being able to, so they all get onto a spaceship and kind of jump into and and, and basically, you know, the end is is like the end of Guardians of the Galaxy where they're just heading off to their next adventure, which never happens. Mm. <laughs> Eventually, Snapper Car comes back to Earth and hooks up with Our Man, the, the Android version. Not like that. Whoa! Mm. <laughs> it's not a slash fiction type thing. But uh, I like this issue. Unfortunately, I think what it suffers from is it pads itself out by showing all these heroes having problems with their superpowers. Mm. Like after you've got that two or three times, you kind of understand what's going on. So seeing it over and over and over again, I think is a little repetitive. Well, However, I, oh, go ahead. I do have to chuckle at page 19 where they're saying, hey, we got to be careful. We, we, we have to be gentle when we take these guys out and Kilowog there. And, and, and you know, um, he's like, OK, Hawkman, let's take these guys out. But please, let's do it gently. And, and the look, they've got just half his face and his one eye is looking to the side like, yeah, let's do this gently. Right. But I did like all of the kind of the comedic beats of every time they think they've they've succeeded, they have to go back to back further into the hornet's nest, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, really? Further? And I lo- and I feel so bad for Tigor because they spent so much time escaping 
And it's like, no, sure, we'll we'll just go right back to to, to where we were captured in. That'll be fine. <laughs> but I think it made it enjoyable, though. I I, I like this issue mainly because. It, it goes in such a different direction. Usually once the invasion is routed, that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. But here we have another 80 pages of story kind of dealing with the fallout. And basically one of the Dominion members in trying to be more successful within his own society essentially screws over everybody. They're like, we were done. And now this guy does this and now they hate us more. So this is a problem. And they, they end up putting him in jail because he's exceeded his mandate. Well, um, and, it, and, and on the earth, it kind of, re, I, I, I guess you could say it resets the status quo. Whereas where issue two ended, it was a lot of, oh, although for that one little thing where the one country was invading the other, but it was all Kumbaya. Everybody's great. We love the, all our heroes now, and now it's turned into, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, they're out of control. So now you've got, you're back to where you were before where, where people are looking at the heroes like, ooh, I don't know. Can we trust them? What's going on? I, I do like, though, that they they really, when they were trying to save them and when they were dying, it was really upsetting the people in power. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't do anything. to they, they, they really, if they didn't get that cure, all those heroes were just going to die. You, uh, and you had the recurring theme of get that blanking camera out of my face from like <laughs> every from Eiling to Waller to Batman. I think at one point, I, I, I think Guy Gardner. All, <laughs> I honestly think we could all see Batman saying, "Get the fucking camera out of my face." <laughs> in all honesty, I mean, he dropped the S bomb in Batman v Superman, so I guess anything's popular now, about possible now. But no, it's it's just, you know, it, one of the funnier moments was that Metamorpho reconstitutes and he had been killed at the end of the Outsider series from like two from a year before. Mm-hmm. So so I love the fact he's like, I'm fine. He's like, well, you were dead. I was dead. I think I need a doctor. Yeah, I mean, I, the dialogue is very sharp throughout this entire issue. And Batman brings in uh, he drops. Uh, he goes Major to Force. Island, I believe this, this. I believe he belongs to you. And he just walks out. <laughs> covered in dust stud here though i like the major force thing because he's trying to get a beer and the guy's like we don't serve serve until noon he's like don't you uh, don't you see who i am i'm a major superhero he's like i don't care if you're superman and he ain't no lush so <laughs> uh no i just I, I really enjoy this as a conclusion because it's so different i mean they've won and now the very people that saved the earth are, you know, their very lives are on the line. And it's up to this like ragtag group of heroes who are either not human or are a green lantern essentially. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that have to go off and save the day. And they don't even know if it's going to, if it's going to work. The idea on one hand, it's, it's a little too convenient that the Omega men show up just as they do. Cause that's their way to get there. Like they don't know, like they all go to space and they don't know how they're going to get to the dominion homeworld. Basically the green lanterns are like, Oh, well, you know, we could do something, I guess with our rings. We'll put you in a bubble. But then suddenly that ship appears and it's just like the, it was kind of a little bit of a deus as machina. I mean, it's great. It's, uh, you know, it had to happen for the plot to happen. Uh, but you know, the idea that they're going to this world and may not come back because they're heading into the lion's den, I actually bought into that. And I, I thought it was extremely dramatic. And and what's with John when he kind of calls out Snapper? 
Um, well, no, I don't think anybody <laughs> likes snapper cars. So there you go. <laughs> I think that might be a creator expressing his beef with a character through another character. That makes sense. And, you know, snapper car was always Rick Jones's less cool cousin. <laughs> All right. Who's Scott Fisher? Scott Fisher was part of the Doom Patrol. Oh, okay. Uh, the guys over on the Waiting for Doom podcast call him Hot Hands because mm. he, he can he can throw fire out of his hands. He's he's basically a character that was created for the Doom Patrol, so it's okay for him to die because he wasn't going on because uh, this was right before Grant Morrison took over the title. Mm. But he is the death that kind of provides that moment of drama where it's like even I, I do like. <laughs> The, I guess one of the funniest lines, you know, in retrospect to me is like, you know, superheroes sometimes die. <laughs> it's like nowadays they die on Tuesday. So, yeah. um, you know, more. I have more. Another question. Who's um, in suburban New York? Uh, Mr. Redditch, the guy that comes in because he doesn't feel good. I that name does not ring a bell. And unless it's something another creator took the ball with in a book I haven't read yet. What I'm assuming is that's just showing that even if you aren't a superhero but possess the Meta gene, you're going to get sick. And gotcha. they wanted another example beyond Maxwell Lord. Mm. So, but didn't oh, so Maxwell Lord didn't because he has powers. I know he has powers later, like mental powers. He doesn't yeah, have this, them here. This is where that manifests. Oh, because being exposed to this. Yes, the, the, the mm. gene bomb, which they make fun of in an issue of X Men, by the way. Um, they do a whole invasion spoof in an issue of X-Men where well, this kind of reminds me of the bomb. That's that the, what is it? That the crease that the, um, the Supreme intelligence allows to be set off on the Cree home world that the Shi'ar I think set off. What what was that? Paul, do you remember? Is that, was that galactic storm? Because the operation galactic storm. That's that that sounds right. The Supreme intelligence, because the Cree had reached a dead end and he wanted to jumpstart their genetic, uh, so he wanted to mutate them, and I think that's what the their the bomb that goes off does. I think you're right about that. Well, that would have been a couple years after this, but there was an issue of of X Men where an alien alliance was going to invade the war- Earth, and they were going to use the Gene Bomb, which was a bomb made to look like Gene Gray. Oh, I think I remember that. Yeah. So, but it it not only affected the people that already had powers; it affected everybody on Earth who could have had powers. And in some cases, it ignites their abilities. Mm. There's a a Superman villain known as the Atomic Skull that shows up a couple years after this. And he had gotten sick during the invasion. And sometime later, his his metagene activates because of an accident at Star Labs. So Mm. it was one of those things where Giffen and, and crew were putting something on the table for other creators. Like, you know, here's our explanation do with it what you want. And and this is where the term metahuman first started popping up. Because before this, they, they had like various names like paranormals or something like that. But here, this is where metahuman actually became a thing in the DC universe. Which is which is the big thing on um, the DC the TV, TV universe now. Yes. So it's just why I get a kick every time they say metahuman. I'm just like, I know where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but it's an interesting conclusion to the story. I, I, I find the story as a whole to be very satisfying. Uh, they take a lot of twists and turns. and But I think this is the issue where you couldn't really split it into like, you know, three issues out of one, basically. 
just because of there's so much re- repetition in all of the heroes and their powers going out of control. Whereas I feel you could have consolidated that into one or two scenes and you get the point across. But because they had the 80 pages, you see more, like a bunch of them in the first half of it. But sometimes that leads to a really good reveal. Like when they were, when they pull back on that one page splash of all of the heroes on the, on the beds in the mm. uh, Metaplex. Yeah. That reminded I mean, that me of the end of it's a mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> I was actually going to say it reminded me of the end of the day after. Oh, okay. Well, yours is a little mm. more serious. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> Nothing more comedic than a nuclear war. Well, that's Steve Gutenberg in it. Waka, waka, waka. Now, looking at the artwork in this issue, now Bart Sears, overall, I would... I kind of see the artwork here as being a little more consistent, but just a little bit more, a little less spectacular. Um, particularly, I, I don't really like the way he draws Amanda Waller. She looks like Luke Cage. <laughs> That's a man, baby. <laughs> but I, you know, I mean, it's not bad. There's nothing about this that 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 cries out to me that it's terrible or anything. It's it's fine. It's readable. But it, it's surprising to me, considering the fact that Giffen laid out all three issues that this one just comes off as, as less dynamic because you would think yeah, the I, dynamism would almost be in the layouts, you know? And it looks like in some cases that Giffen's art is like staying there. Like there's a, there's a page where uh, on the ship when all, when um, Superman's talking to Brute on page 45, he goes, you know, more than more there is to that child than meets mm, more there is to that child than meets the eye. Uh, uh, so you say I do. I see Superman looks like a Giffen drawing in the panel, and the Martian Manhunter looks like a Giffen drawing in the sixth panel, the middle panel on the bottom of the page. So now, Brute Forever is going to be Yoda in my head. Perfect. Should never. <laughs> I think I would have uh, felt more about Primus's death if I knew who he was back when I was twelve. I don't remember if he stays dead. He got better. <laughs> I feel better. The dialogue is really sharp still in this. Uh, there, there's a scene in the book earlier where Starman is talking to a general, uh, and the general is just like kind of like you know spitting nails and just just being like your stereotypical uh, you know army person. It's just like if not, if they approach the perimeter of their history, can I ask you something, general? Sure, kid. What? How many times have you seen Patton? Oh yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of a lame joke because Patton in that movie, I don't know. I've been watching, they've been playing it at the gym a lot. So I've been watching bits and pieces of it. And it seems like George C. Scott is giving a pretty dynamic performance and that he's not this two dimensional character. But still, maybe I'm just thinking too much about a stupid one panel joke. <laughs> but I just want you guys to get that camera out of my face. So, so what'd you guys think of the wrap up, though? Uh, I wasn't expecting this. I was, I was got, I was wondering where, where it was going to go. And, and like the very first page was a surprise. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I forgot about that one panel in that, in issue two to where the guy's like, oh, I'm taking off with a gene bomb. And then you never hear anything. And it's just starts out, bam, that it's already gone off. And the, the, you know, the poop hits the fan from so that speak. point. So to speak. I, I mean, I enjoyed the series overall. Again, like I said earlier, I, I, I didn't feel totally invested in it, so I think 
some of it was lost on me. But overall, I thought it was an enjoyable three issues. And again, very, very media, a lot going on. Uh, and I think if I had a greater connection to the this era of the DC universe, I probably would have liked it even more. Mm-hmm. Oh. I can totally see that, though. So, so wait a minute. Dr. Fate, so his ability to control magic is a metahuman thing? Because he's actually affected, too, which kind of confused me. He has powers me. beyond the helmet. Oh, okay. See, I thought it came from the helmet and the stuff he wore, which yeah, had me a little... A now, Dr. Fate was a little weird right now. Um, if Shag was here, he could explain the entire thing to us. Mm. But Kent Nelson had superpowers beyond the helmet because during Legends, the helmet gets ripped off and he's still able to fly and has super strength and a vulnerability. Oh, okay. So gotcha. that kind of makes a weird amount of sense. Hmm. But okay. now I'm thinking of it as a plot hole. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, so we have a we do a overall grade for. Well, I think the best way to do it is to give grades to the story overall, mm -hmm. and each issue individually artwork, and each indi indi issue individually cover, and then you can give an overall grade for the series. Okay, I think that sounds fair. So, so... Mike, you okay, got the I'll stage. <laughs> I, I will give the overall story an A uh, because it sets out what it wants to do and it takes a lot of twists and turns to get there and it does what a good crossover like this is that it shakes up the DC universe, it, it shakes up the fictional universe but it gives it something to play with. Uh, artwork wise, I'll give the first issue an A minus. I'll give the second issue a C. Uh, because half of it was good and half of it wasn't. So that, that seems like the very definition of what a C should be. And I'd give a B- minus to the third issue, because while it was consistent, there was some weirdness going on with Bart Sears' artwork. Um, Story-wise, each... Uh, oh, cover-wise, I think uh, the, the cover to issue one is a definite A, and I'll give Bs to issues cover... Uh, the, to issues two and three... Because, like, we got the Iwo Jima thing going on with two. So mm -hmm. that's very dynamic, but there's something really off about the, the figure work. And while I like the composition of the third issue, there's something weird about all the characters that kind of takes it down a peg for me. Uh, and story-wise, with each issue, I'd give it a, a definite A, but that's only because I'm invested in the DC Universe like I am. I'll give the second issue an A because I there was a few fist bumping mo uh, moments or pumping moments in there and i'll give the third one a b because i think there's too much repetition in certain scenes uh that it could have really been condensed into one but i still like the twists and turns it took okay hmm. so what do you give the series overall uh a definite b plus it seems when fair. You what, do you, what do you say Bill? average all those out um, looking at the covers, the the first one is an A. I, I think that's very striking with the Dominator with his fist reaching over the globe and his, his face looming in the background with all the alien ships heading towards Earth. Um, but yeah, just like Mike said, when you get to the second and third, it loses a little something. I don't know. One really just looks sharp. I don't know if it's because of all the detail of the ships. I, I don't know what it is. But, but, but two is kind of like in the B-plus and... Three's cover is also in the B plus era or, or uh, range. Um, the story overall through all three, um, 
I too would, you know, as a combined, I would give it a B plus A minus. Um, I was recognizing some some a- aspects in the uh, other ones I didn't. Uh, Mr. Bailey was here to answer my questions. <laughs> and uh, the art, yeah, the art in the first one. Uh, well, I'll just do it overall. The overall art through the whole series was, uh, I would give it a B, but the the second half of the second issue was really good um so yeah i guess i guess that one like mike said would kind of be a c and then the um the first one would be a b and the last one would be like a b minus so i i guess uh overall for the whole entire series as a whole it would be like a b plus a minus for me how about you well cover wise Issue one, I think, is incredibly striking, and the fact that it doesn't have a hero uh, air, on it? air quotes recognizable character, since it's just a Dominator, and at this point we don't even know who the Dominators are if you're looking at it on the newsstand. Uh, I, I, I think it's clearly an A. I have no question in my mind. Issue two, I like the Iwo Jima thing. I don't like the fact that you really don't see anybody, that they're all facing away from the camera pretty much. I'm just, I don't know, I just don't like that for the cover. But isn't that how the Iwo Jima picture is? Well, it would depend on what angle you, you went at. But yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't... There's something about it that just is off. And, and like Mike said, I, I think some of the you know the anatomy or the, the layouts of the bodies just don't look quite right, particularly Captain Adam. Um, so I'm going to say a C-plus for issue two. And issue three, while I like the layout, I don't like the way each character is drawn on it. So I'm going to say a B-minus on that. Artwork interior issue one, I think, was the the strongest of the three. I'm gonna say a B plus for the artwork there. Issue two, I was gonna give it a higher grade based on the quality of the second half, but I think Mike's breakdown of you know really good, really bad just equals a C. I kind of kind of got to go with that logic, so I'm gonna just adopt that. And issue three. Something about it that just doesn't sit right with me. I, I, I look at the individual pictures and it looks like I should like this more than I do. But overall, there's something about the artwork that just left me a little cold in that. So I'm going to say a C plus, whereas it, it could have been so much better. And story-wise, I think if you're invested in the DC Universe of this era, I think it's an A. Somebody like me who likes the DC Universe of this era, but doesn't necessarily have all the background stories and had to kind of miss out on some of the points that were being made. Uh, I'm going to say a B minus for me personally. And overall, I'll give the book a, a B, uh, just a, a regular B. Uh, well, the story, a regular B, the overall three-issue three, three issue miniseries. Mm-hmm. Now, this was adopted, or adopted, adapted on the four-part DC crossover. How do you think mm-hmm. they did, Mike? I think they did an incredible job not only in providing uh, four nights of entertaining television, but also in bringing a comic book crossover to life. When you look at how some crossovers work, there are some that are like fully invested in the story, and then there are some that are kind of tangential. To me, the Supergirl issue... Issue... Issue so. Episode. uh, the, The Supergirl episode for me was the one that had the trade dress of the crossover, but only had like two pages worth of it inside. Yeah, see, I didn't get to see that one, but I heard from a friend of mine who said it was really, they just, she just kind of mentions the 
uh, the Dominators, but doesn't. So obviously that, she has them in her universe. Yeah, the, the crossover yeah. is effect, effectively the last panel on the last page. Yeah, so it, it was a, ostensibly it was like the mid-season finale where they wrapped up the majority of the stories that have been percolating this season. And I think this season has been very strong for Supergirl. So while I think they wrapped up some stuff too neatly, I still enjoyed the episode. Uh, and I really like seeing her and Barry reunited. The Flash episode was amazing. Uh, it was great setup for it. I really liked the Arrow episode, even though I don't watch the series. I felt that this was the issue where the crossover just happened to hit at an anniversary issue. In this case, it was the 100th episode. So they had to do something about that, but it's still tied neatly into the crossover. And they stuck the landing. And I think one of my main problems with the DC shows, and it's one of the few problems I have with the DC shows, is that they all have great setup, but their last act is always kind of rushed. Whereas here, I felt that they really took their time to give us the climax that it really needed to have. And then they had the moment I had been waiting the entire time and they flipped it on me because I thought it was going to be Kara looking at Ray Palmer and saying, you look like my cousin. Uh, <laughs> but it ended up having Ray Palmer saying she looks like my cousin. Uh, I loved all of the I like that they were dealing with the flashpoint stuff through the entire thing. And we got like the resolution to uh, Cisco hating Barry in a right. pretty organic way because he ends up going through kind of something similar. Uh, I. I didn't watch Legends of Tomorrow last season because that pilot did nothing for me. But I started watching this season because, okay, if you're going to get me to watch anything, throw the letters JSA at me <laughs> and I will watch your show. And But be, based on that, I really fell in love with the characters. And they've had some really, like, they actually, I think, I think they did a good job with Jonah Hex in, in the season episode where he was in this year. Uh, so... I just liked that all, everybody's storylines got serviced, but it still was this neat team up with all these heroes. And the final battle was pretty badass. I mean, yes, most of it took place on a rooftop, but it was still kind of cool that they were able to do as much as they did with, uh, with the special effects for great. I mean, I, I just really enjoyed it. Maybe I'm gushing too much. I apologize, but I just, I, I loved it so much. And I felt like, I felt like I got everything out of this that I haven't gotten out of certain other live action adaptations of DC material. Well, 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 we got the Super Friends Hall of Justice as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was I, like, whoa! <laughs> every time it went back there, I was like, meanwhile. <laughs> now, As, there, there was a lot of, um, there was like a big meta reference. Um, not if you haven't seen Arrow. You don't know the scene where Thea and um, is talking to Malcolm Merlin, John Berriman, and they're talking about his son, Tommy, Tommy Merlin, his character, uh, the actor actually left to go work on Chicago Hope as a doctor to, to play a doctor. So in that they reference and say, well, Tommy couldn't be here because he's in Chicago. Who would think he would ever be a doctor? So it's. <laughs> <laughs> I like the moment where. White Canary looked at Arrow and said, you know, this is all from us. Mm -hmm. And that was a nice little metatextual moment that basically, you know, th this whole era of DC television spawned from Arrow. Mm -hmm. So that's why I kind of liked that their 100th episode happened during this. And uh, it, it, it was, uh, that was weird because I'd only watched the first couple of episodes of the first season and I've only seen like one or two of each of the other seasons. 
So I think there was a lot there that I didn't get, but it was kind of neat seeing uh, the captain from Criminal Intent come back as his dad. And this proved to me two things. One, Stephen Amell is freaking huge because he was taller than that guy, than his dad. And his dad always seemed like really tall on Criminal Intent. I don't know if I, if this is weird to notice that, but maybe I just think that Stephen Amell is just this massive human being and I just never noticed it before. Mm. I like how they introduced the time travel element into the story. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty well done and, and blended into it very nicely because you know you they couldn't adapt it obviously the way it is in the book because of the different characters that they had to play with uh one of the things that just kind of left me cold was you know i know barry was getting grief for the whole flashpoint thing and rightfully so because you're not supposed to mess with time blah 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 i understand cisco's anger my brother was alive you know would be alive if you hadn't done that and he's dead so i blame you i understand that anger i really didn't understand diggle's anger I have a beautiful baby girl. If you hadn't done that, I would have a beautiful baby boy. Okay. I could kind of understand that. I mean, I, I don't... Am I going to say it's rational? I mean, it's easy to say... I mean, but... Uh, uh. I, 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 I get what Paul's saying, though, because... Yeah, well, you knew. still have a child regardless. It's not like you... You lost a child; they just changed their sex. Yeah, if, if yeah. you know, if, if his but wife still, had lost a baby or something, and he found out that in the other universe the baby had lived or some, you know, now I maybe he really wanted. Maybe he really wanted a daughter. You know, yeah. it could just be his own personal. You know, I, I mean, I mean, I, I he got over it quicker than Cisco did, so it just seemed a little forced to me. Is is my point? Yeah, it was basically like Barry. They made a change. They're explaining that change now. And Diggle's mad because he had a son that he never knew about. But I was kind of with you, Paul. I was like, but you still have a daughter. I mean, it's and not like... The, you know, he takes that so seriously that when they're going to face this threat, he's he's content for, for Barry to stay out of it because he's angry yeah. at him. Really. But but also, I mean, let's, let's, let's compare that to Stein, who, because <laughs> of his own... Uh, messing with the timeline now has a daughter that he was going to erase at first, but now they have to keep that secret because he doesn't want to lose his daughter. Right. Yeah, which I I, I really liked that. I thought that was great. Well, one year Victor he Garber, slowly, like he he felt distant from her, and he slowly warmed up to her to the point where now you know he's kind of accepting her as his daughter. Well, the, the one thing all of these shows do extremely well is make you like the characters. Uh, you know, it's like uh, Supergirl, especially, was just adorable throughout the entire. Oh, thing. she was great at the end when she's like, "Oh yeah, by the way, I talked to the president, and you're going to be stationed in Ant in the Arctic. Have fun!" He <laughs> the big smile and grin and walks away. <laughs> uh, originally, it was supposed to be Linda Carter as the president, like it was in Supergirl, but they couldn't get it to work. Uh, but I do like the fact that. One of my favorite characters on Legends of Tomorrow is actually Heatwave. Because <laughs> I, just, I think he is like the Guy Gardner of that group. Um, you know, he has, you know he's, he, he's, he's an unrepentant killer, but he's got this honor about him. At one point, like at one point in the episode, he goes, you don't leave, a, you know, if you've got a crew, you don't go against them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Barry's like, great, he just compared us to villains. But to me, that's actually an honorable thing. You know, you got a group of friends, you don't, you know, you stick with them. So to his mind, these people aren't like fellow heroes. 
there is crew. So he's and 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 that led to everybody. And I just love the fact that he called Supergirl's skirt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that he calls Ray haircut though. That just that just makes me laugh. But I think um, I think everybody got a moment to shine uh, when the the government was trying to take all the heroes. Even Ray got to kick a lot of ass in that sequence uh, in mm-hmm. his suit. I mean, it was just, it was so enjoyable. I was smiling the entire time. Like, every time they would do something, I'm like, oh, 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 oh. Like, and again, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be, it's not going to be one of those moments where I'm like, well, this is doing right and the movie people are doing wrong. But I got everything I wanted out of Batman v Superman that I wanted in that but didn't get. I got it out of this. You know, all the heroes working together, you know, and, and let's face it, Arrow is kind of Batman. So there was yeah. that dynamic going on. And it also helps that all the actors are, are really charming. <laughs> Even Stephen Amell, who's all like taciturn most of the time. But no, I just I enjoy the crap out of it. I I had pro- little problems here and there. But overall, I really feel like they lived up to the hype that they had been giving to this thing. Oh and yeah, because this has been for weeks now. They've been, they've been, you know, this was the big deal. And uh, one of the things that I read about the Dominators' uh, difference between the comics and, and the show was that in, in the comics they had the green robes, and they said they 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 did them without the robes because the CGI would have looked probably too bad, you know, with the with the uh, I guess hundreds of of Dominators we see in some shots that the that the robes would not have looked good and it would have been way too expensive to try to, 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 to do to make it look, it would have been way too expensive to do it, to make it look as, as good as it did uh, with, with that, with that clothing on them. But I think it also kind of ties in because if they kind of look like the gray species, you know, you know, the, the folklore of UFO sightings through the years anyway, Mm -hmm. it it just kind of matched up better that way. The actor that played the young and old version, well, I, well, more the old version. I know I've seen him before. I didn't look him up prior to this, but I know he's played a certain type of heavy or a, like a cop character in the past. Did, did you guys? Do you guys recognize him? No, no that, I didn't. Neither did I. No, I'll look it up later. Maybe next show. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I it did was, too. I thought it was very solid. And and you don't have to have any background with the comic necessarily necessarily to enjoy this. No, because I read the comic after I saw this, and and I I, I thought it, I mean other other than recognizing that design of uh, Alien, you, you know that that I I had seen it but never read the storyline with it. I had seen it maybe on like a like a a paid like a trade ad or something like that, but never had actually read the story. So, uh, yeah, this this was a good a good crossover. Kudos to DC TV. Yeah, they, yeah, they keep pumping out the winners. They they hit all the the major beats of the story. The Dominators are here because of superheroes and what they represent. You know, and, give and us they your heroes. The, they had the Gene Bomb, mm-hmm. <laughs> which so, was which made for a good uh, to me a good um, crossover or a, a good moment for Firestorm. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kind of expecting Supergirl to be the one to fly that into space. Uh, and I just, I loved how they used her offensive power so effectively throughout the entire episode. <laughs> like she was flying and using the heat vision. It wasn't all like punching and, and, and hitting and stuff. So I, oh, yeah. I really... and then, and then at the end of the flash one, they, something, um, they, uh, um, 
like three quarters of them were mind controlled by the dominators mm-hmm. and uh they had a they had a what was it uh arrow uh arrow and um the flash were basically taken on the rest of them which was nice because you know it all kinds of stems from it all kind of stems from this crossover stems from their first crossover mm-hmm. which they uh, even you referred know. to yeah yeah About how he shot him <laughs> shot him in the back with arrows it was awesome <laughs> and then of course exactly. you have felicity smoke best team up ever <laughs> i find i find that felicity may have her time may have come and gone she, i don't know i become I darcy like... to me i don't know i still think she's hot well of course yeah. I just kept confusing her and Kara when Kara was in her civilian identity. You know, it's funny you say that because I was looking and Felicity has the very narrow square glasses and Kara mm-hmm. has the not so narrow <laughs> square glasses. So, yeah, there's a difference there. Right, right. The only missed opportunity was not having John come with them. Because mm. I think the Martian Manhunter would have been a good addition to the whole thing. Plus, I wanted to see him and the Diggle flex uh, together. Yeah, basically. Because <laughs> did you guys watch the um, the little uh, w- like little uh, what am I trying to say? There's a word that I have in my head. Promotional bit where all of them were together, and it was like the superhero fight club for this season. Uh, I yeah, I've seen bits and pieces. I don't think I've seen the whole thing. There's a moment where John walks into the control room and morphs into the Martian Manhunter, and Diggle falls off his freaking chair. It's it's, it's a really good comedic beat. But <laughs> but no, my wife actually said that it's like, why isn't Martian Manhunter coming along? Yeah, we don't need the flying, super powerful, and vulnerable guy on this. They didn't get Clark either. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> they didn't get Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Maybe next season. <laughs> I love it how Diggle throws up every time that Barry runs with him. That's they show up, they get up there, and there's Diggle. <laughs> Considering how well they did with Superman, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to see more of him <laughs> in this. But, you know, whatever. It's okay. I like how Kara completely forgets about John. It's like, you know, on my earth, it's only me and my cousin. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and all and all the other tons of aliens that live in our world, but not here. Uh, yeah. No, I, I think they. I, I think it's it did everything a good crossover should do. You know, we got the action, we got the character. You know, beats. I mean, they 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 pretty much from beginning to end. The only thing I can see people complaining about is that Supergirl didn't have as much to do with it as she could have. And I totally see I was prepared for that because through Radio KAL, you know, we follow every little bit, you know, bit and piece of information that comes down the pike. So uh, about a month ago, there was an interview with the producers that were saying, well, Supergirl's not really part of it. It's just going to happen in the final scene. So I was prepared for that. But I can see the way they hyped it on the channel. Like it all begins in Supergirl. And it's like, yeah, that's like saying Remo Williams, the adventure begins three quarters of the way into the film. <laughs> so <laughs> I can see where people would be disappointed with that. But still, I think they did so much for the episode times that they had. There was really no padding in this whatsoever. And I was really impressed with that. So I give it an A, personally. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. So. Oh, and 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 now 
now we could have a uh, you can have a JSA JLA or you know you've you've got the all the alternate worlds to where they now they can cross over thanks to the tech that Cisco just whipped up. She's got the little brooch that she can call and they can contact her, create a little rift, fly on over to Earth. Anytime you want to cross over, wink. wink. <laughs> <laughs> yep, sure we'll see that next season. Yeah, I would think. I just you know, next season they almost have to involve Superman to make it even bigger. So <laughs> I just uh I was just very happy, and I really appreciate you guys having me on to talk about it, because now I get to gush about the whole thing. Yeah, and we really appreciate you coming on. You know, you and I were talking, what, like a week ago, saying it's been too long since we've recorded something together, so this this takes care of that for a short time, but now i got to go be, go and be on a views. Well, of course. I mean, we've got, you know, some bad guys to bring on, and uh, some greatest some battles. Women to look at. We have some greatest battles to watch. To talk Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thanks for coming on, Mike. We really appreciate it. And, and uh, we, we needed your expertise on this issue because I don't think we oh, yeah. prepared to yeah, do we, without you. We, we couldn't have ta- tackled this without you, being us being the newbies. Well, I just feel really bad because I could have just, you know, like suggested some of the better crossovers and us talk about those. Uh, but then I'm just like, no, let's talk about the main series that's... 240 pages <laughs> of material. <laughs> I'm a bad friend. <laughs> You're an enabler. You just do so a good series. You're a good friend. Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, listen, listen to Sesquite's show because it's, it's really good. I may just do that. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week. But, um, <laughs> uh, bah, 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 bah. what was I saying? <laughs>